Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello and welcome to an all new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter Munley. And we are greeting you on the final Friday of February. And we've got a poem fitting for the month is it fair to say that this is the first poem uh that was ever selected in a fit of peak <laughs> yes i sent jack the poem and i said fuck it i'm pissed at the winner right now so we're gonna do this poem and this poem it is a legend among legends it's called the snowman and it is by the one and only Wallace Stevens, who you may have heard of. Um, you've definitely encountered his influence, probably. Especially, um, he wrote the poem 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. And many, many poems uh, have been written um, riffing on 13 Ways of Looking at a X there's there's many others but um he he's uh firmly in the kind of american modernist tradition i would say um stevens was born in 1879 he died in 1955 he was a lawyer for a hot sec and then he was an insurance executive which you know i think makes the first uh known poet we've done on the program to have worked as an insurance person. Um, so we're, we're checking, checking the boxes there. Um, he famously would, or at least I think this is true. Maybe it's apocryphal. Um, I heard that his, his composition uh, method often was he would commute to work and compose his poems in his head. And then as soon as he got to work, he would dictate the drafts to his secretary. Interesting. You know, <laughs> William Carlos Williams is another one who had a, a successful and long-term 
career outside of his writing, which is sort of interesting <laughs> as a, you know, kind of a contemporary. Yeah, no. Um, Another modernist. That's true. That is very true. Um, and I think it's, you know, he's interesting. He's he's quite a, a titan in the canon, um, but he didn't publish his first book, Harmonium, which uh, The Snowman is from. Um, until I think 1923. So he was more than 40. He was about 44 when his first collection came out. Yeah, he got he kind of got a late start. I always thought that that was an interesting uh, part of his his career. It is. And it's also interesting because a lot of his sort of greatest recognition didn't come until right at the end of his career. So all of his like National Book Awards, Pulitzer Prizes, those came in kind of the last years of his life, even at which point he'd been writing for a long time. And he also had a long time before he was really writing that seriously. He'd always been kind of interested in literature and writing, but yeah, hadn't published a full collection until later in his life and, you know, didn't get recognized fully and didn't kind of develop his whole literary project, which he was very, very invested in yeah. um, for quite a while after even that first publication. And, you know, he was doing other stuff. He was being an insurance executive <laughs> and having kids and thinking about stuff on his commute and whatever, and also being quasi obsessed with poetry and trying to describe it. Yes, he was all about the imagination. I think that's a pretty good intro for Stevens. This is always been one of my faves of his this is the snowman by wallace stevens one must have a mind of winter to regard the frost and the boughs of the pine trees crusted with snow and have been cold a long time to behold the junipers shagged with ice the spruces rough in the distant glitter of the January sun, and not to think of any misery in the sound of the wind, in the sound of a few leaves, which is the sound of the land full of the same wind that is blowing in the same bare place for the listener who listens in the snow, and nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there, and the nothing that is. <laughs> exactly, Jack. Ooh. That's that's all there is to say. <laughs> all right, let's read it again. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, it's an interesting one because I think it encapsulates. A lot of what Stevens is about, but does it in a way that isn't maybe as off-putting as many of his poems <laughs> and works that are more directly addressing his literary obsessions, because it does get into this kind of nature of, uh, well, literally nature, because it's talking about all the cold and the boughs and whatnot. But, you know, the ending point is this kind of like internal versus external versus what is and isn't and can you describe things and all the all these like big tangled and complicated questions that he devoted a lot of thought and writing to but it it wraps it into this sort of more palatable and bite-sized package which i appreciate having read some of his more labyrinthine works 
Yes, he he has uh, many poems that are quite like overtly philosophical almost and use a kind of a vocabulary that um, is seemingly intentionally opaque and like Sunday, I think Sunday morning starts complacency of the penoir or something like that. Oh my God. Uh, um, I mean, it's cool. They're cool and they're fun, but <laughs> I do, I do find it interesting that a poem like this exists because it shows that it's not necessary. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it, it was in many ways and it was part of what he was after to do that, but like, no, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think, I think for him, um, one of the one of the i think best examples of of that kind of style that i think i still personally enjoy um is the emperor of ice cream um yes i thought and, of that while reading this as well as a sort of counterpoint because you have what it's concupiscent something or others yeah the the concupiscent curds I think, yes. um, you know, whenever I make ice cream, I think, oh, look at these concupiscent curds, congealing, <laughs> coagulating, clumping and whatever. Call the roller of big cigars, the muscular one, and bid him whip in kitchen cups concupiscent curds. <laughs> concupiscent? Concupiscent? I don't know. Con I don't even know. Um, I mean, it's a great word. It's fun to say. Yes, it's so. I mean, interesting story about that one. This I I I had read and kind of like, okay, I like the language a lot. And then I was reading a kind of a close reading. Um, I'll try to find it, but but I hadn't actually realized what the plot of the of that poem, "The Emperor of Ice Cream," and there actually it's a funeral. Um, and there's a because there's kind of this moment you know, in the second, um, you know, and spread this sheet, which was referred to earlier, so as to cover her face. If her horny feet protrude, they come to show how cold she is and dumb. Um, and there's flowers and stuff. And so you get this kind of pretty grim scene that is um, kind of over it's like sort of intentionally obscured by the, the liveliness and the, the ornateness of the language. Um, and you have this, this kind of repeating, um, you know, let this, my favorite line of that poem, but let B be the finale of seem um, as in like what seems to be, um, the only emperor is the emperor of ice cream, um, which is like, I don't even know what the emperor of ice cream is, but um, yeah. like, well, like, like BB finale like having, of scene. Having the words ice cream in that context is sort of jarring and interesting because it is such a, you know, it's like it's a sweet treat and it's a childhood thing and, but it's in the middle of a funeral and it's like these sexy curds are getting all whatever. <laughs> you know? and it's yeah no it's very cool 
but also an interesting counterpoint to something like this because that's also a shorter poem and this is a shorter poem and yeah. you know we normally do our narrative rundowns there's not a ton of narrative here there is a speaker addressing the bleakness of winter and then it takes a <laughs> philosophical turn into perhaps the bleakness that is within or without or both or not at all who knows Maybe we'll figure that out later. Uh, <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> but that's yeah. pretty much the plot of the poem. Uh, there are no literal snowmen. So there's also the overhanging, perhaps, mystery of what's the title about. Uh, is the speaker the snowman? And is there, in fact, no man? <laughs> Who knows? Whoa. Um, I don't know, right? Like, whoa. <laughs> um, definitely yeah because it starts like one must have a mind of winter to regard the frost in the boughs so it's like and it's kind of the first three stanzas the poem is is in clean tercets three line stanzas um and it's like you gotta be a winter mind to be hanging out with this wintry shit and and then it's like and not to think of any misery in the sound of the wind and like not be just depressed basically um which i think yeah um but then you're right that it goes in this kind of it gets it kind of blows around in a totally different direction after the misery and the sound of a few leaves. And then it's like, we get to this listener um, who's also in the snow. Um, this poem has a, has a personal place because it, it uh, in uh, my senior year of high school, we read this poem and I remember the teacher who is a very good teacher, but um, not the biggest poetry fan um and <laughs> as is uh in as some ways sometimes be the case yeah in some ways the the original part of the original impetus was this for this whole podcast was like you know how like english teachers like don't like poetry and then what do you know no one likes poetry because they've only encountered it from teachers who don't like it or they like a very specific version of poetry and so yeah. it turns everybody off uh, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. anyway this was one where the ending was kind of like i might be remembering incorrectly but i felt like the teacher was like what the f like this is <laughs> the nothing that is not there and the nothing that is what is that supposed to mean <laughs> and i was like good point i have truly no idea what it means um but i thought it sounded pretty cool and um i read more stevens in college and i his book harmonium i actually quite quite like and recommend because it it's one of those collections where you can read it and it's very helpful like one poem by itself it's like especially with stevens it's like Oh my God, like what this, this, <laughs> right. this chest with an impenetrable lock, like it, it sounds like it's full of stuff. Um, and then you can, when you read, you know, cause it's, it's a pretty long book, 
but it has it just has a lot of different kinds of poems that I think show his various inclinations. You know, it's like 120 pages. You know, for example, there's another early poem called The Domination of Black. And the rhythm of that poem um, really reminds me of the rhythm in the second half of The Snowman, where we have this like, um, in the sound of the wind, in the sound of a few leaves, which is the sound of the land full of the same wind that is blowing in the same bare place for the listener. Um, and this poem, it's like, um, at night by the fire, the colors of the bushes and of the fallen leaves repeating themselves turned in the room, like the leaves themselves turning in the wind. And then it goes on, but it's like, was it a cry against the twilight or against the leaves themselves turning in the wind, turning as the flames turned in the fire, turning as the tails of the peacocks turned in the loud fire, loud as the hemlocks full of the cry of the peacocks, or was it a cry against the hemlocks? Um, and you have this kind of thing where like the, there's like these, there's few, these few words uh, in that poem, it's like turned, wind, fire, peacocks, hemlocks, um, that all sound pretty good together. And they, they come in this kind of circling rotation that creates this kind of like rhythmic thing. Um, and I feel like he kind of does that here where you have like, you know, um, sound happens three lines in a row, you know, in the sound of the wind and the sound of a few leaves, which is the sound of the land full of the same wind. And there's kind of like other poems that are like almost pure jokes, like poem jokes, which are, uh, I find very. You always um, tend to like that. I know I'm such a sucker for it. It's very embarrassing, but there's one, <laughs> there's one. Um, the poem is called a high toned old Christian woman. And I always in my head, read it in a very high British voice. Um, and it's like, poetry is the supreme fiction, madam. We agree in principle, that's clear, but take the opposing law and make a peristyle, and from the peristyle project a mask beyond the planets. Thus, our bodiness, unpurged by epitaph, indulged at last, is equally converted into palm squiggling like saxophones. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and there's like, there's parts where the sound is like, it ends, this will make widows wince, but fictive things wink as they will wink most when widows wince. <laughs> um, anyway, the sound, the, he's very, because I think, I think uh, to me where his language gets really weird is because he has a almost childish delight in the sounds of words. I think in some contexts, like if you're only reading like one of his more serious uh, contemplative ones, 
that comes off as very like I'm just doing poetry to you know say fuck you if you don't get it you don't deserve to get it (laughs) (laughs) but when you read the collection you you kind of see that you know there's some that are just like he's just like I just want to like have like Lake Titicaca in a poem or something, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think that playfulness is like pretty easy to detect a lot of the time, even in a poem like this, that is, you know, it's heavier and it ends all philosophical and and whatever, but like there's a light touch throughout it, whether it's the amount of different ways that the oppressiveness of winter is described over and over and over again, or it is this like, circular ending for the listener who listens in the snow and nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there and the nothing that is like it is a little bit humorously circuitous to write it that way and i think that that is not an accident it's not just i was trying to write something profound and a little bit contradictory and oops i accidentally made it kind of funny you know it's (laughs) it's an intentional construction um which I do think lends another texture to what's going on in the poem, because as you read through it, I think you can feel a little bit of that, certainly with the language being kind of playful, if not the actual subject matter it's addressing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I do feel like the title too is, has a, like the snowman, it, it feels a little playful. Well, and I can't tell how much of that is just the contemporary ear where I'm thinking about like the snowmen you make as kids, you know, because that's what I'm that's what I think about, which is like a Famously very invented in 1973. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. By David Snowman. <laughs> a lot of people think it's because they're like man shaped figures made out of snow. No, it was David Snowman. David Snowman. Uh, Kenny Bunk, Maine, who first came up with it. So. Well, and David Snowman is is the great uncle of um, Mr. Wardle uh, yes. of, of Wordle fame. <laughs> really runs in the family. Not the names <laughs> so much run in the family. They get new names with every generation, but strong inventive spirit. Um, yeah. No, I exactly. mean, yeah, like I think of the you know Calvin and Hobbes strips where he makes whatever snow things need to be made you know like just dozens and dozens of snowmen and they come to life and do all kinds of stuff that's one of my instant associations but yeah it's a little bit similar to ice cream in the other poem where it's like this you know tonally very different thing going on yeah no absolutely yeah and i'm i'm curious you know like we talked about how there's not a huge narrative necessarily in the poem but it it's got you know it's in a way it's because it's it's moving more um in the currents of of thinking and thought and imagination and ideas um which is often you know the the realm that that stevens is is wandering in where there's not actually much happening but in in the the land of ideas and imagination that's where everything is happening and i think you know is is one of the the delightful possibilities of poetry that you can, you can, um, you know, you don't need um, a bloody, gory plot to, to get things going. Um, And I think, you know, in terms of, of the ideas, 
you know, we start with that one must have a mind of winter to not be miserable <laughs> at the winter, basically. Um, which is already an interesting connection of the internal and the external, which becomes more explicit. Like you get the hint, a little bit of foreshadowing there of like your, your insides must be a part of the season, not to be overtaken by the feeling of the season. So you must already be feeling it or else it's going to make <laughs> you feel it. Like, you know, you've already got to be a little bit sad and wintry or else winter's really going to make you sad, man. <laughs> Which is kind of interesting, which then becomes like kind of the whole thing by the end of it, where you're, is the listener nothing? Is the listener even there? Um, which feels also like a little bit of a callback to uh, like Emerson's invisible eye and sort mm. of a transcendental moment, which I know we've talked about. I think I mentioned it when we talked about another winter poem, Ossip Mandelstam's Alone I Stared into the Frost White Face, but it feels kind of relevant here too in the way that winter is being contemplated and also the way that the barriers between the inside and the outside are breaking down or becoming complicated definitely yeah i yeah the kind of the way that i i think i enter my understanding of the poem is like um is yeah there's kind of two like and this actually is is a was also something that I, I feel like I first started thinking about in my senior year of high school. Uh, I, ha I have a vague memory of you mentioning the ending of this poem at some point, And I don't really? know if, I don't know if I'm making that up now because memory isn't perfect. <laughs> and you, you said, it, I have a very vague memory of you mentioning this at some point around that time. I could believe it. One other thing that we, that we started to talk about in that year of English was just the idea of a binary and like opposing ideas or things or concepts. Um, and I think with this poem, it's such a, a poem of collapsing binaries in a way. And you've already touched on one of the main ones, I think, which is the internal and external. Um, and so you kind of see how those two things that are opposed uh kind of like in the idea of it right because it's not just that they're opposites it's like they make each other possible in their opposition like if you don't have an interior there can't be an exterior because it has to be outside of something um and so i think by playing with by by kind of messing with that that binary that sort of creates some of the it's both like makes the kind of in terms of a craft thing i think it gives the poem like some steam um but it's also kind of like it's the area it's one of the areas of tension within the poem that's kind of like being worked out um and then i think the other like binary in this poem is kind of just summed up by the <laughs> the end of the poem which is like the nothing you know that is not there and the nothing that is um and i think to me it was also i think we've talked about it and we should probably make like a compilation of all the episodes where we bring up certain ideas but um <laughs> like the idea of like a present absence 
I have a whole poem picked out for us to talk about that with sometime. Yeah, I've been sitting on that one for a while because we do bring it up in other contexts. Yeah, (laughs) but it's a it's a real phenomenon, and it does present itself as like a really interesting thing to kind of consider and investigate because it is something that doesn't. It's something that is easy to approach in a lot of different ways. And, yes. and and kind of reveals itself in a lot of different contexts, which I think is why we end up talking about it intermittently and why it can show up in this poem in a way that's totally different from the one that I had picked out that's a little bit more explicit or others where we've also kind of identified it. Um, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, so present presence, feeling the presence of absence. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is like another kind of uh, binary and in, in the same kind of way that inside and outside are where, you know, presence is the opposite of absence. And yet you like, you can't, you can't, they kind of make each other possible in the same way where you, you can only have, you know, it's like only when you get into a misunderstanding of something about Schrodinger's cat that you can have a both there and not there who knows kind of thing um and the immortal words of muddy waters you can't spend what you ain't got and you can't lose what you ain't never had oh damn (laughs) that's cool presence of absence yeah no it's true and i think it's you know it's it's one of those things where like when i say like a present absence like it feels very abstract and maybe esoteric or something like that but i think it's also it's very i think it's actually quite a human preoccupation i mean i just think the first thing i think about is just like horror movies with ghosts and things and hauntings it's like those are like the 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 embodied (laughs) um the the presence of someone who is gone you know what i mean um who are like making themselves known um and be like hey i'm dead and now i'm fucking with you basically (laughs) Uh, dead but i'm not gone exactly and i think in the in the physical world we do it even without thinking we're like you know speaking of our senior year of high school i (laughs) i watched i watched to school almost every day and then one day during our senior year uh a tree that we walked my my friends and i who walked to school together um, Connor didn't get to be part of that group because he was too busy not living on my walk to school route. <laughs> <laughs> yes, our uh, parents conspired many years prior interestingly, to live in different places. <laughs> yeah, I would often see your mom on my walk to school. <laughs> really? That's... Yeah, she would be out with friends walking and going the other direction. Oh, <laughs> we would pass cool. each other not uh, like a few times a week. Uh, oh, that's anyway, very funny. The point, yeah. <laughs> The point is, the point, the point being, there was a tree that was along the walk to school. And when it got cut down during our senior year, that was a very present absence because it hung pretty low. And so, you know, I got in the habit of like touching it where it bent down and then it was Mm. gone. And it was like a thing in our group that like, oh yeah, that's the tree that I touch when I walk by it, which I wasn't really thinking about, but it became a habit and it became a thing. And it was like noticeable. And there's a picture of me standing on its stump, kind of recreating where it used to lean over the sidewalk because it was like a big thing, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and its absence was felt because you could now see the sky where it used to be. And I think we, as, as humans, I think that's an area where even outside of the realm of like 
storytelling or significance or symbolism, like we just notice when stuff is missing like that. Right. Um, however many illusionists try to make you think that they can, you know, distract you and stuff. You know, oh, you don't notice anything, but like the tree in your front yard gets chopped down. You're like, whoa, used to be a tree there, huh? Now it's a stump. This is weird. Yeah. Right. You don't know what you got till it's gone and all that. Um, no, that's very true. I think that's very true. Um, and I think, I think like to, to make it broader, even more is like any kind of change is a form of, of loss, even though, even if it's positive, it's just like, it's, you know, you've, if you're moving somewhere, you're losing where you're coming from. If you're changing your routines, then it's the patterns that you're losing, which maybe they're good things, but, but those those moments of, of change in, in one's life are, are, I mean, constant in a lot of ways, but I think it's true that only once the, for a lot of things, only once the change happens, you realize what, what had been there before. So I think like those two binaries in a way, um, and now I'm getting into very, like, (laughs) if I was gonna, you know, write a freshman college, English paper on this poem, you could basically, you could, one, one could write, how are the two binaries of inside and outside and uh, presence and absence kind of like interacting with one another or playing out in this poem? And what does that tell you um, about something? Um, Anyway, any any freshman English students (laughs) out there looking for paper ideas, five pages on that is a cakewalk that's a 10 or 20 page paper you could if you can do it in five you've got a really good one <laughs> take that into your seminar wow your professor spark notes if you're hiring hit me up now on on the note of the sort of presence absence nothingness non nothingness thing yeah and, hey you know what i'll just say it uh-oh any freshman english students out there looking for a paper you could have this one too <laughs> king lear there's a lot about nothing in that play they are Mm. constantly using the word and talking about the concept there are quite a few famous moments about nothing in it uh probably the most iconic is in the very opening when lear is dividing up his kingdom and he's deciding how to do it by having his daughters tell him how much they all love him cordelia says nothing and then lear says nothing and she says either she just says nothing again or she says like nothing my lord or or whatever um and he, wow. he says nothing will come of nothing speak again right oh, right that's Which, true I, hey check it out um <laughs> but she's like something something i cannot heave my heart into my mouth whatever um the point is she's not gonna lie to him and be like oh my god i love you more than anything in the world and you're the only person or object i've ever had any affection for uh, which is what her sisters do. And she's like, actually, I love you a realistic amount. And I also am going to have a husband someday and love him. And you know, <laughs> she doesn't go any farther than that. But I think you could also extrapolate that, like, maybe she'll have a cat, probably going to love the cat and it's going to be different. And she's not just like, you know, I don't, I'm not going to debase myself like my sisters who, as she says, claim they love my father all because uh, they don't, they're both married. And she's like, what's up with that? If they have no affection for anyone, but you, what's with the husbands 
It's true. Um, and then they turn out to be the conniving ones. Wow. Who could have predicted? Now that's a tragedy. I know, right? Jeez. Um, but the, the idea of nothing and the fool who comes in later. And interestingly, in a lot of adaptations of King Lear, the fool and Cordelia were played by the same person. So there's Ooh. a whole there's a whole realm of Lear analysis that deals with that cross casting. Because wow. um, the fool also talks quite a bit about nothing, which is a, an echo of the earlier interaction with Cordelia. But in general, the play, the way that the play resolves is that it doesn't basically like pretty much everybody dies and there isn't really a huge outcome from it. And so there's also this overhanging, not like full nihilism necessarily because like all the bad people do die and the one person who's wheeling out the bodies is like the decent i guess spoilers for king lear from <laughs> hundreds of years ago <laughs> and also like everywhere but you know like a decent character is the one who wheels out the bodies but it's like it's not a play with a clean moral and it doesn't have you know uh something like macbeth where the world is thrown out of order, but then by the end, there's this sense of maybe order kind of reasserting itself or, or a different kind of resolution. That doesn't happen in King Lear. And I find it interesting in this poem that the way that nothing is being played with at the end feels similar to how it happens sometimes in King Lear. And not just because there's a major, uh, like, meteorological event in Lear as well that is the moment of Lear's madness is also the moment of the tempest the moment that there's this giant storm on the moor so it's like the the oh, torrential yeah, the rain sky. yeah blow wind ah, where he's like yelling at the sky and stuff which is another instance of like the internal being mirrored by the external which is like a dramatic move that happens but Again, it feels of a piece with some of the stuff that's going on in this poem to me. And I think a reading of this poem alongside King Lear could possibly bear some interesting frozen fruits. <laughs> <laughs> Plums in an icebox. Oh, wow. Oh, bringing it all back. But, the um, trifecta. The, the trifecta. Lear, William Stevens and Shakespeare. <laughs> Indeed. Um, when I was trying to get my head around literally nothing. <laughs> Jack, Jack. William, William Wallace. Oh, shit. Think about that. Oh, my God. Now you have to come up with one of those little pun jokes. One of like my pun knock, jokes? One of your knock knocks that has that as a, just saying. Uh, well, something about something something scottish freedom fighter who wrote king lear the snowman <laughs> all right the all right, ice all box right. plums no here's here's my question connor later stay okay tuned. Yeah. later i'm gonna ask you a question i've been more ex i'm so excited to ask you this question later you have no idea um oh. but that's for later i'm uh, worried about that no it's gonna be amazing don't even worry about it uh, it's <laughs> gonna be so good you're gonna love it uh my question is when uh old wallace stevens was uh commuting to work what did he what did he call his vehicle? Uh-oh. Shoot. What? What? His carmonium. Oh wow. <laughs> Brutal. Oh. Just just Ooh. rots the heart. Yeah. 
um like a plum taken out of the ice box and left <laughs> in the sun anyway um the point is trying to think about all this stuff especially nothing and the nothing of nothing and you know what will come of all this nothing at the end of this i was into my leer and it was interesting to try and and bring the two of them together a little bit but it helped me to at least get my bearings around literary nothing (laughs) (laughs) and and i'm curious i guess for some of your thoughts on where that and ends us up because there's like for the listener who listens in the snow and nothing himself beholds so is the listener himself nothing or is he beholding nothing the way that that sentence is constructed kind of could go either way and then it says uh and nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there and the nothing that is what (laughs) but also like i get it it's one of those things where you feel like you understand what they're what they're saying because it it has a distinct feeling to it and you're like yeah i feel you but i don't understand you but i feel you you know (laughs) yeah 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 right i don't get it but i get it yeah yeah like i i understand why that very long story you told me about your coworkers means that they're not being nice (laughs) like i don't understand it but i can tell from your tone (laughs) why the fact that dave is taking everyone's grapes is like really bad next it's gonna be raisins man um like i i i I catch the feeling even if i didn't catch all the names yeah it was cindy who was taking the grapes and not dave and dave's the one who's been filling the copier wrong you know but it's like i get that they are not pulling their weight or whatever yeah 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 that's sort of where i feel like i end up with this last stanza where it's like i'm not necessarily catching all the nothings and somethings and the not nothings and the nothings that are but i i feel it yeah 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 well i think so but i think first i would just say that that's the vibe namely stevens often could be seen as privileging sound over sense in a certain kind of way where in the emperor of ice cream example i literally had a poetry teacher who's like was like an accomplished poet didn't know about the fact that that poem like was about a funeral basically um so like the sense is so far suppressed but the poem even so the poem still has enough going on that's exciting in the sound i think and and sound meant broadly um that it works so in a way of like sound being the feeling and sense being the understanding or something so i think like part of what i what i like is that i do get the feeling even if i don't fully know what's going on it's this complicated thing where you know the difficulty of of poetry is often pointed to as as one of its uh is is criticized for being hard to understand or whatever you know, and then I think on the other side, some poets and lovers of poetry understandably are like, well, it doesn't have to make sense or like you don't have to, you know, obsess over like it's what is this riddle mean? to be solved? It is a you know, yeah, we've, we've talked about that quite a bit. And yeah, you know, that's real. 
Yeah, which is totally real. So I, I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too, which is to say, <laughs> I think to me, the way I think about at least someone like Stevens is if you are able to delight in the the rhythm and the feelings of the poem, I think that's a wonderful thing. And I don't think you you must like exact its exact <laughs> uh, meaning in order to like say like, oh, I like this poem. This poem's good. Um, on the other hand, I think you, I think his poems are available for deeper readings and have meanings that can be, you know, maybe it's not like a totally cogent, uh, persuasive argument that you can un uncoil from this poem. To your point about the nothings, I think, um, yeah, part, part of it is I start thinking about it in terms of the winter because it's a, it is, it is kind of the perfect um, encapsulation. And obviously I don't think Stevens is the first to come to this, but that winter is the season of, of the present absence where it's like the oppressive barrenness of winter. It's like so cold and there's so much nothing that it's overpowering. Right. And you're kind of like, oh my God, you know, it's this void. The heart of the poem is kind of like in that space because that's where he's drawing his language and his images from. To me, there's, I think another way of thinking about <laughs> poems in this poem is that, which is probably something also that we've maybe talked about is that, and I think actually the, the King Lear and the, the dramatic sort of comparison is helpful in this way in that poems can be seen or can be experienced as, as a happening or an event unfolding rather than like, this is a statement that is a thing, right? It's, a, it's more of a temporal happening um, in the same way that a play unfolds. In that way, you can think about how does the poem, you know, in the same way that, that King Lear begins with the three daughters and then Cordelia offering nothing and nothing will come of nothing. And then by the end, King Lear's, well, everyone's dead, but King Lear's gone mad. There's that ambiguity, like kind of un, unresolvedness. Um, you know, that's kind of like you start and end in totally different places. And I think here there's an interesting way where we have one must have a mind of winter to regard the frost and the boughs of the pine trees crusted with snow. That's where we're beginning of like, one must be like the mind of winter. Um, and then thinking about to the, our binaries as maybe even the kind of stage of conflict in the poem where, you know, rather than a conflict being between two people in, in the case of a play or something, um, King Lear versus Cordelia. And then there's obviously a lot of people in conflict with each other, <laughs> play. uh, not just them. Yes. Um, but then, you know, in, 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 uh, like in a narrative, it's the, the conflict that that's the propeller for the narrative of how the conflict develops. So maybe a way of thinking about this poem is like, instead of we have certain conflicts or certain tensions within the kind of idea space of the poem. What I think is kind of interesting about this poem is that you start with that one must have a mind of winter, 
who's doing kind of a beholding of the junipers and regarding. We get by the end for the listener who listens in the snow and nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there and the nothing that is, that the listener is beholding in the same way that the one is in the beginning of the poem, which is to say the listener by the end has collapsed the inside and outside. That's just kind of an interesting development. Um, And then when I'm thinking about that, then I'm also like, okay, well, also winter and there's images and there's like stuff like that. And it's also interesting, like the way that the poem changes from beginning to end in that sense, where the first part of the poem has you can you can picture a winter scene basically you know and and the 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 language is pretty it's beautiful in its own way but it's also quite descriptive and you know like to regard the frost and the boughs you know the boughs of the the branches um of the pine trees that are crusted with snow um which is like quite concrete um and have been cold a long time to behold the junipers We've got another tree that's shagged with ice, which is like also kind of interesting. And then by the end, it's like the last stanza, basically there's the listener, there's snow, there's nothing. And then there's more nothing. Stevens is clearly capable of being quite concretely descriptive in the way of describing land and wind and snow and things like that. And yet all of those kind of sensory details are like pretty much gone by the end. That's like another thing to track in the poem that that's kind of interesting that seems to be happening too in in parallel. And actually it makes me think of a little bit, oh gosh, I think it's Jenny Shia's private property it's very different, but um, that one, I remember we talked about how there's like no I, like no subject, like the, just like, I do this, I do that in the poem. It's like, um, that poem starts like exhaustion slides from the body through the lips first, like from the body through the lips. And we talked about other poems that have a very present I um, in them. Um, and I think the presence of the I, like you can also think about this in the binary terms of like I and other, or like self and other, or also like I and, you know, um, the outside or whatever, or the, the landscape. Um, and by emphasizing the I, you also sharpen the distance from the self and in the same way like the descriptiveness and the sensory details of the pine trees crusted with snow and the juniper shagged with ice and the spruce rough in the distant glitter gives you something to see and something to see on the outside it gives you the the outside of the winter more sharply whereas when you're at the end (laughs) and it's the listener who's listening in the snow and nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. It's like even uttering is like going to nonsense, you know, like the nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. It's like collapsing all of 
all of the the inside and outside the nothing and the thing to me like that's where the poem is i i like that a lot and i think that that is so right that like all of the something is in the nothing Mm. and clearly this is where the heart of the poem is like intellectually philosophically and that's fascinating and i do think that is actually kind of a lear connection because in cordelia's nothing like that's where most of the something of the play is but because she says nothing she gets banished he gets kicked out from both of the other daughters houses when he divides up the kingdom if he just divided the kingdom amongst the three of them he probably could have lived with cordelia forever he was planning to do that but she's gone and neither of his other daughters are willing to hang out with him because you know they suck and he also has these rowdy nights with him whatever but he gets kicked out onto the moor and he loses his mind and like all of this is you know all of it kind of kicks off because cordelia says nothing your description of the ending of the poem and thinking about the sort of circuitous language has reminded me of one of my favorite tasks ever from taskmaster (laughs) okay so check this out that's not where i uh expected and i love it so check this out it's from season 12 episode 8 called a couple of ethels make and wear a popcorn necklace with at least five pieces of popcorn and then do the opposite of the following then do the opposite of the following you must under no circumstances not avoid not making the bell not ring <laughs> uh-huh yeah then yeah. do the opposite of the following you must under no circumstances not avoid not melt wait not avoid <laughs> not make what the okay hold on it's going to take me ages to work out this sentence the task is over when you have either rung the bell or not rung the bell and said are you serious this is like a, this is an anxiety dream right so like <laughs> here's yeah. the thing so like only <laughs> one of them bothers to accurately understand what the sentence says but still does the wrong thing because they forgot that at the beginning it said do the opposite of the following. (laughs) Oh my God. But all of the something of this task is in the nothingness of the fact that it's for the like show and it's to be funny. And no matter what you do, it's going to be funny. So of the folks, one of them knows they did the right thing. The other four are completely unsure whether they did the right thing or the wrong thing, but they picked a thing. And like, (laughs) all of the something of this task is in the nothingness of it. And that's yeah. kind of the like overall thing of taskmasters. Like all the something of it is in the nothingness of all the arbitrary whatever's they have to do. And I think that in that way, also because the language here reminded me of the ending of the poem, which is like <laughs> under no circumstances, you must not avoid not making the bell not ring. <laughs> like, but also remember you're doing the opposite of that. Um, but first also make a popcorn necklace like all the of the necklace is nice <laughs> the necklace is a good touch the the point is like all of the something of that task and the show is in the nothingness of it the way that all of the something of Lear there's a fair reading of the play that boils it down to Cordelia is nothing and it feels like the something of this poem is wrapped up in the nothing yeah um <laughs> no that's 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 a perfect comparison um in in some ways it's a linguistic game um 
of of just the fact that you can just put words together into a well, sentence like, <laughs> and me, uh yeah to me at least symbolically i love uh in the taskmaster thing that the one person who did actually accurately decipher the sentence still did the wrong thing because they missed a part of it which i yeah. think directly addresses some of what you're talking about where it's like sometimes poetry doesn't need to be solved or broken down like you get the feeling of it and it doesn't necessarily always pay off to completely deconstruct it <laughs> to the point of understanding because you might still miss something. And maybe the whole thing is like being in the thing is the thing. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. And my kind of like my last thought is like, to me, it's, and I, I did, I did pick this as, as to, uh, mentioned at the beginning, sort of out of anger toward the winter. Um, I, <laughs> out of my, my lack of winter mind, I've been thinking of the misery of the sound of the wind. Um, but I think one, one thing that is kind of, it's like sort of, it's not like meditation, but it's like, there's a kind of the, when you said being in the thing is the thing, it's like that to me, that is what it is. Cause it's also like most people, most of the time are not in a state where they are able to behold the nothing that is not there and the nothing that is, which is to say, most people most of the time are like there's a whole lot of nothing and in a way to like it's interesting because to from the ability in a way uh to collapse the inside and the outside of oneself um if if you're able to enter that space you know and and get the mind of winter and kind of be there among them then emerges your ability to distinguish a new kind of binary between nothings of an absent absence <laughs> and a present absence that is kind of like a beautiful thing that there's a a sharpening as as one thing kind of dissolves another thing becomes clearer yeah <laughs> I think that's very right and very real. <laughs> and I think it's not an accident that you would be drawn to this poem if you've had enough of winter. Because yes. for all of the kind of philosophical whatever, it's also a really good poem to just be fed up with winter with. Yes, exactly. Should we read it again? <laughs> let's, let's hear it again. This is The Snowman by Wallace Stevens. One must have a mind of winter to regard the frost and the boughs of the pine trees crusted with snow. And it had been cold a long time to behold the junipers shagged with ice, the spruces rough in the distant glitter of the January sun, and not to think of any misery in the sound of the wind, in the sound of a few leaves, which is the sound of the land full of the same wind that is blowing in the same bare place for the listener, 
who listens in the snow, and nothing himself beholds nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. Um, Jack. Yes? <clears throat> Jack. Yes? <clears throat> Mr. Rossiter Munley, sir. Present and accounted for. I have a query for you. I can't wait. It is something you've been expecting. Yes, it is. <laughs> Okay, well, it's time for recommendations. Tell me, what have you been watching, listening to, absorbing, osmosising these days? Lately? I am so glad that you asked, because as I mentioned <laughs> earlier, I have a question for you that I am more excited to ask than maybe any other question ever. Uh-oh. So, Connor, this is my question. Oh man. Jack, for those listening, which is everybody, is rocking out. <laughs> That's right, Connor. Do you really want to do you really want to taste it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is the song. That is the song Do You Really Wanna? Which is the theme song to the HBO series Peacemaker. And it is by the band Wigwam which is a hair metal band, but they're a more kind of contemporary era hair metal band who are in on the joke and are not <laughs> joke, but like they aren't doing all the hair metal stuff as self-seriously as the, you know, people were doing in the eighties. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It just doesn't speak to me in the same way as the more tongue in cheek version that Wigwam present. Um, <laughs> and so I have been listening to some Wigwam particularly while uh, shoveling snow, not once, but twice in one day. Um, Ooh. Enjoying their 2010 album, which kicks off with that track, uh, which is called Nonstop Rock and Roll. And you can find performances by them all over the internet. They represented Norway back in 2005 at the Eurovision Song Contest. And there are also more recent um performances such as an acoustic two-person version of do you really want to taste it which is very good i also love that they have an album called 667 the neighbor of the beast which is hilarious to me both because <laughs> both because it's the neighbor of the beast and because as i'm sure others have pointed out the neighbor of the beast would actually reside at 668 um, because 667 would be in fact across the street from the beast across the streets yeah um but yeah oh, that sounds great yeah that's that's most of what I got. I also watched The Tragedy of Macbeth on Apple TV Plus and overall loved the production design and the set design and everything. No, I loved <laughs> loved Denzel Washington as Macbeth. Didn't super love the interpretation of Lady Macbeth, either the like way that they had her operate in the plot and, or you know, Francis McDormand was doing a very good job, but I didn't love the direction that they took the character. Um, so that was a, a down downside overall to me, but everything else pretty much really into it. Yeah. So those are my recommendations. Wigwam, The Tragedy of Macbeth. Boom, boom, boom. I love it. Boom, boom, boom. What about you? What do you got going on? Are you reading anything good, listening, watching? What's happening in the Connorverse? Ooh, ooh, ooh. 
Um, I'm reading a book. I'm doing it in a weird way where I'm just reading random chapters. Yeah, I, I've been reading. Um, the book is called A World Without Police. Um, how Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete. Uh, and it's by Gio Maher. Um, and it's basically, it came out in August 2021. So it's pretty recent. And it it is, you know, it's incorporated things that have happened, you know, since George Floyd, um, which I think is interesting. And I think to me, you know, in some ways, right now, we're in a moment of the, the reaction to the sort of abolitionist defund push, which, to be clear, no police departments were defunded. Nope. Um, <laughs> Certainly not the Minneapolis Police Department, despite what was it the telegraph or somewhere wanted you to believe Where they like didn't bother to mention that when they say defund they meant like the budget was reduced by two million dollars oh is it a hundred and seventy nine million dollar budget <laughs> ah i see and was that two million recouped months later uh yes dear reader it was the the reactionary forces have the upper hand in certain ways it can be kind of discouraging, especially we in Minneapolis, uh, police uh, killed another black man, uh, Amir Locke, just about a month ago. Uh, no one's been fired or charged as of yet. And it's a very grim, racist Groundhog Day that, that we're kind of going through. And I think that what this book talks about um, is 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 basically the the subheader that a strong community makes cops obsolete um and it it talks about it it there are chapters that that in you know um like communities in venezuela that have kind of kicked out both the the drug dealers and the police because they were both kind of heavily implicated in them um and have affected effectively, you know, are, they're not like policing themselves, but they're keeping themselves safe and not using official police to do so. Some of those communities have, um, which the book talks about, it's like that have reproduced certain aspects of policing, others have less so. Um, but I think building actual community filled with people um, and supporting those that have already done so. And I, I was learning more about the history of the Minneapolis Police Department. And after the Plymouth uprising in the late 60s, in which parts of North Minneapolis, which is a largely Black part of the city, burned, in the aftermath of that, the there were you know community safety groups like the Soul Patrol uh, that formed, as well as the American Indian Movement, AIM, um yeah and you know which um i mean one of the amazing things to me about minneapolis is that aim literally had people you know is still around and literally had people on the streets of uh you know protecting like indigenous spaces and communities in the aftermath of george floyd you know decades after the group 
started um, in response to anti-native police violence. Anyway, I think the book is is I, I I've been enjoying it because I think it takes seriously what police power actually is and how it operates and manifests it from everywhere from the union to the kind of larger systemic reasons that capitalism and white supremacy that that want the presence of police to do certain things. And so it takes seriously that even if you were to pass a piece of legislation that did, you know, on paper struck at the power of police, that it's only once you've also combated where everywhere their power is that that you can actually make meaningful change. Um, And that one way to do that is kind of takes from the Miriam Kaba quote, we're not uh, like, we're not trying to like get rid of police. We're trying to make police obsolete. Um, And, and that is, is done uh, often through community. So I recommend that um, for those who are, are interested uh, in keeping with that kind of work, a world without police by Gio Maher. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Roster Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Close Talking. See you next time. Throw your dog the invisible bonus.